The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any outside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everyone? My name is Steve Vandewall, and I'm the host of Cannabis Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. This podcast will cover a full spectrum of topics, including cultivation, business, medicine, politics, culture, advocacy, and everything in between. Because let's face it, the cannabis industry is very complicated. It's robust, and it has a ton of moving parts. So it's going to be my job to help you understand it a little bit better. So tune in every week for a brand new episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you really, really, really like the show and are interested in sponsoring, please shoot me an email at logistics at cannabiscumlaude.com. Now enjoy the show. What's cool. going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Cum Laude. I'm your host, Steve Vanduall, and I'm here today with Josh Newlinger, co-founder of JR Crop Tech. Josh, what's going on? Thanks so much for, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, a quick shout out to Ramsey for putting us in touch. I, uh, I've been following you for a long time and I've uh, been so excited to talk to you and I've been really interested in talking to you. And uh, I mean this in a loving way, like nerding out with fellow cannabis people is like one of the, my favorite things in the world. And, you know, you're one of the kings. So I, I really appreciate your time. That's, a, that's the funnest part of the funnest part of the job. Isn't that right? right. I, uh, so you. I want to get a good an idea, you know, before we kind of get into the meat meat and potatoes of the of the interview. Is talk to me about your background and how you got into the cannabis industry. Um, okay, um, so I grew up in the Central Valley, um, born in Breedley, raised around Fresno area. Um, so I was around ag my whole life. Um, went to Fresno State, did the whole thing there. Um, but uh, you know, when I was when I was like. 17, 18, I worked in a warehouse full of irrigation parts. And I was just like, I was like, how does this shit all work? Like what, what are these valves that can like control the different, you know, you could like pump control valves, all these crazy big ag valves and whatnot. The, the plumbing on it just was kind of interesting. Cause I was driving a forklift at the time and anything else was more interesting. Um, but, uh, I, uh, so I started kind of nerding out with the irrigation stuff. Um, wound up, they had a job opening or somebody in technical went over into, um, you know, kind of just helping with, with how to assemble basic systems for landscape, for, you know, small things at home, stuff like that for people. Um, that was at uh, uh, NDS. At, at, they make like Agrofim Rain Drip. They're a different competitor of Netafims. Um, and then uh, once I finished up uh, college, I uh, got a job offer at Netafim um, to go work there's account manager for some of their their dealers um, went from that uh, you know I, you know uh, Ramsey and I very well he's the people person I'm not <laughs> so I I was uh, pretty bored with that whole you know run around and just schmooze with people all day long kind of thing so I got into the technical side at Netapim as well had a really great boss uh, shout out to Zeb Brilka he uh, he was the I mean, he ran the company pretty much. the The CEO was there, but he was and wasn't. Right. But in general, Zev was the uh, he was he was the guy to go to at NetFM if you wanted anything done. He was the director of product management, marketing, 
Um, he was, I think he was the only one that spoke Hebrew on the team so he could communicate with corporate, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, um, but, uh, I think it was like a year in or so, um, after I started doing technical, you know, going out, helping large farmers with, uh, um, big filter systems, fertigation systems, designing these thousand acre farms and whatnot for drip irrigation. Um, we, I, I, you know, I had always had an interest in a hobby in growing cannabis. I had grown plants in my garage since I was 18. Um, and I'd always set up little systems just out of stuff I took from work basically. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, so I, I was like, you know, why are we not in the cannabis industry? This was right around 2012 when, um, uh, Colorado went legal. I was like, why are, well, we need to start like getting into cannabis. And, and Zeb was like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I went out and went to my first MJ BizCon um, and uh, brought back a bunch of, you know, pictures and evidence of the size of it, which was what we needed to be able to convince corporate back in Israel that it was a worthwhile venture. After that, it was kind of just like, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's try to, let's see how far we can push it. And so that's where I brought in that, that little brown dripper that everybody uses. Um, that was, that was our way of tracking cannabis sales at first. And it was also, you know, it was because it was the best dripper flow rate for the application that was being used most often, the hydroponic substrates and whatnot. Um, and, uh, it, it took off and we got, we got that and the, you know, the Netaflex system, the disc filters, the valve, you know, every, yeah, yeah. All, the whole thing from their portfolio got it into the hands of some, some really influential growers like jungle boys. Uh, um, I mean, a lot of people went around and just, uh, I, I got, we, they had sold maybe two of those Netaflex systems in the U S prior to starting working cannabis. And now they sell like 30 a month. So it's, uh, wow. it, it blew up pretty quick. But, uh, after that, so then, then the, uh, the CEO of Netaflex India, uh, didn't like what we were doing. Um, they, they said it was making them look bad. So, uh, in their traditional agriculture markets. So we got kind of put on the sideline for a while and, I don't, I don't do well on the sidelines. So at that point I was like, I'm going to just get over into just working in the cannabis industry for real, where I don't have to, you know, play these games started working for nameless in LA. Um, they, they, and, uh, that's, that's where I brought Ramsey in. He was, uh, at Grodan at the time. And, and, uh, we used to do a lot of work together. Um, sure people have heard that whole background story on the first smoke of the day podcast two or episode two. Um, that would probably take another hour to talk about, but <laughs> the, uh, after that, we, we left from nameless, went up to NorCal up in Santa Rosa, worked there, um, got, got to fire up two brand new buildings up there, which was fun. Got to you know, do the whole design build from start to finish and, and fire it up and operate it and see how it went. It was also one of the first buildings we had ever used LEDs with. They were still kind of a new thing. Not yeah. many people were using them at all. Uh, we threw them in the bedroom just to kind of see what we could do. And that was where we, we got to cut our teeth on LEDs and have uh, a whole lot of fun figuring out like the EC and all these things that change when you go into the LED rooms. Um, after that, we, you know, we had brought Arroyo into NorCal. Uh, we were pretty much their only like large paying client at the time. They came to Ramsey and offered him a job as their, their main sales guy to, build this Arroyo thing up. He left. Um, he, and then, uh, I think six months later he had gotten sales up to the point where they could bring me on too. I came in and 
did the uh, you know, kind of like grower support, helping uh, consult for growers that were trying to implement the system. And then after uh, after that, we kind of you know we we did that for a while, and we got to a point where we just realized like we we could be doing our own thing and uh, be doing a lot more just the part that we want to do, yeah. <laughs> which is the growing and the consulting and helping and nerding out on all this kind of stuff and uh, creating our own products and stuff like that. Just it was the the right move at the time, and so we found a JR Crop Tech, and then. Uh, it's been we've been doing that ever since yeah I mean, that's kind I, of the, the overview of the background i mean it's crazy because i mean you essentially brought netafim into the cannabis industry i mean i use all netafim drippers i use arroya and i'll be honest i didn't know that about you and i don't think i hope people understand no. like how <laughs> uh how how huge that is in just terms of like general industry growth i mean that's really impressive i appreciate you sharing that for me, with me um and now we oh, absolutely yeah we we helped build the uh, the platform into what it is today it was definitely a little uh, different when we started with it it was you know battery powered like double a battery powered little loggers that you put in yeah. the room and then you have to run all these wires over and you know so it's definitely gotten to to be a much more impressive system nowadays so they, they do a good job so now that you have now kind of transitioned into your own game, which is JR Crop Tech, which ha- seems to have a, a couple different components to it. You have your consulting side and you also have your uh, fertilizer side, uh, which is something I'm really interested yep. in talking today about plant nutrients and fertilizer and what goes into, you know, really making uh, not only a great fertilizer, but a, a fertilizer designed for cannabis. Um so when you guys were formulating your formula, you know, your formulation, what exactly is the thought process that goes into formulating something like this? So typically like for a new crop, it's, it's a whole lot harder, right? Like if, if I was doing tomatoes or cucumbers, I could go look up the sufficiency research, right? There's, there's research on pretty much every commercially produced crop on what levels of what nutrients are ideal at what times and for how long and yada yada the whole program from start to finish uh, cannabis has none of that yet right like there's some people doing some basic beginning parts of that but i mean just the amount of time it takes to get that done you know some of some of us might still be alive by the time it's done yeah no kidding <laughs> maybe not you know <laughs> it's uh, there's a lot to a lot to be done so it's kind of you know it's, it's it was definitely the wild west it was kind of figuring out through a lot of trial and error, right? We did tissue testing, of course, but what what were the ideal levels in the tissue? Nobody knows, you know, no, or at least nobody knew. Um, we still can't say for sure because, again, that research just hasn't been done. But we do know that when we saw the tissue levels that we like, we got the best results, right? So then it became, you know, how do you get those tissue levels? Um, but, it, you know, going, going way back to when I, you know, when I, it was before I even started at Netafim, uh, my little garage grow at home. I, uh, I, had, I had used some of the bottled nutrients for like my very first cycle. And after that, I was like, why? Like, I, I know what fertilizers are. I grew up in the Valley. I was around big ag a lot, you know, and I had uh, friends and family members who farmed and and when they, when they would talk about those little bottled nutrient things, it was just all laughter, right? So it was, uh, I was like, okay, well, everybody compares, uh, you know, at least back 
when the, I can't remember what year this was, but it, everybody compares cannabis to tomatoes, right? So let's just try a tomato feed, you know? So I, I pulled up uh, Peter's 51126, um, gave that a try in my backyard. And I was like, there's no reason to spend this kind of money on nutrients. Like I, yeah, I kind of had that feeling, but uh, you never know because of the, the way things are labeled. These companies don't always have to write everything that they put in the bottle. So it's like, oh, who knows? Maybe they do have some kind of special boo-boo juice. Yeah. Um, but no, they didn't. So it was, uh, you know, there's a, a recipe in the ag science literature called the Hoagland recipe, right? So it's, it's kind of it's like one of the original hydroponic fertilizer recipes that was developed to use on any plant for research purposes, right? So I said, okay, we'll start there. Let me take Peter's and adjust it how I can to make it as close as possible to the Hoagland recipe. And then let's run around of it. And then saw how that happened. Very vegetative plant, way too much nitrogen. But uh, so I, I dialed that back, and it's like, okay, let's run this again, run it again. Eventually, I came up on a, a mixture of Peters and like five other uh, raw salts added to it that would make it pretty close to the formula that we use today. Um, the micros weren't weren't ideal, which is part of the part of one of the reasons why I made the the fertilizer because it was like the the Peters or Jacks or whatever people want to call it um, it's a good fertilizer but it it's just it's not made for cannabis right like it's it's a veggie feed so um, after you know we ran that Peters mix pro- with the the added um, MKP MGS uh, calcium nitrate calcium chloride and the Peters all went into the formula, but we ran that for, you know, years. We ran that nameless. We ran it at NorCal um, and pretty much everywhere else. We did anything for a while. And then um, you know, I, I had made this recipe, the, the crop tech recipe, based on all of these tissue analyses we have done over the years and kind of just conglomerated all of my data and said, okay, now what, what have I learned and what do I want to make here? And the part per million target ratios um i also worked with uh, with perry labs out in uh, watsonville doing he does most of our tissue analysis for us and, and water testing and soil testing and all that kind of good stuff and his recommendations for like the npk parts were pretty similar so i was like okay well we must be on to something here <laughs> and uh, i went uh formulated it from raw salts we tried it at uh, a number of different started through a number of different cycles with different genetics and we're like after this is this is it so we uh went and found a manufacturer and and, uh we had some we had some struggles there in the in the beginning because there's there's a lot of not so good manufacturers out there but uh we got got ourselves in a good place um but in, in general it so the other part of the the fertilizer um formulation is in making sure that it's balanced and that you take pH into account, right? So there's there's different nutrient availability levels at different pH levels, right? So if you're if you're designing a fertilizer to be applied at, you know, say at like ours, like a 5.6 pH, that's going to have a different balancing than one that's designed to apply it like designed to be applied at like a 6.5 or something like that, right? So taking that pH into account and then taking in the milli, the milli equivalents, right? So most people talking PPMs, you know, nitrogen is, you know, say at 2.7, ours is like 120 nitrogen. Um, 
150p, 350k, 180 uh, calcium, and about 90 magnesium, right? Well, if you if you take the basically the size of the molecule and its electrical charge into account, that's what's called the milli equivalent per liter, right? So your milli equivalent, if you then take and you look, you know, those part per million values were nowhere near the same. But 180 ca- uh, calcium and 350k is exactly the same milli equivalent. Right. So basically, the plant is not force-fed any one given thing; it is freely able to take whatever it wants, whenever it wants, without yes, one thing interacting and or affecting the uptake of the other. So that and just a lot of trial and error, trial. watching it work over, you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of or millions actually yeah i think we have over a million square feet of canopy that we're operating right now wow um so yeah i mean different people different clients but, but still that's yeah, that's we, huge. we run them yeah. um so we're, you know and we were lucky to have a lot of people trust us to do that kind of thing right like you know they're just like well you know more about the fertilizer stuff than i do so go ahead <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know being having that trust and being able to run these things at such a scale was what let us come out with this as quick as we did. Otherwise, you know, if it, if it was just me in my garage, it'd probably still be another 10 years out. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's fair to say that, I mean, what you guys, you know, I've, what I've admired about you guys since I started following you is that you've always taken a data and science approach. You know, we have this conversation a lot on the show. It's like a lot of the industry and a lot of the methods and stuff that we use and growers use and people use have been folk or has been, built on bro science and there's some of them hold water for sure. But, you know, until you really, until we were able to actually have science backed research and actually have real research in a control environment, you know, which is something that you guys have really done a great job of all of, uh, all of this, you know, a lot of this stuff has been hearsay and, you know, not really backed by real proof. So, you know, that's, I think what, what excites me one of the things that excites me the most is really starting to see the new research that comes out and starting to hopefully put some fact behind uh, or some fiction behind some of these things that we've all been brought up to use and implemented in our grows. And, you know, yeah. I, I always go back to the conversation about flushing. Well, there's definitely some, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's definitely some that, you know, there there's this disconnect between academia and practice in, in reality, right? Like there's there's a lot of, very the way these people are way smarter than i am right that that are professors at these universities and and do a lot of this research but then when you get out in the field it's like well how do we apply this information right how do we actually set up a system that can do the things that we need to do to be able to get this result in the plant right we worked with uh, when we were working with meter group which is the, the or was the parent company of of arroya um they were founded by Galen Campbell, who's a soil physicist from Washington State, right? Guy knows way more than I ever will about soil science and that kind of stuff, right? But at the same time, when we're talking about it, I'm like, okay, so when we hold plants at this like matrix potential, we get this response, so we can just do this in the field with the drip tape when we use this flow rate, we use this, this, this. He was like, I didn't think that was possible. How would you do that? And like, so there's these, you know, that there's a a big disconnect between practice and in in actual real world and academia to begin with and then when you bring in all of this this bro science stuff right the stuff that we learned just growing in the garage and on forums and whatnot some of it has validity and some of it that where academia and, and people from ag are like no fucking way like there's no way that's true you're just dumb some of it is right like 
the um it was okay so for example one one study that uh bruce bugby is doing out at utah state right he did a a trial on phosphorus level and you know if you know bugby a lot of his research has shown that most plants don't need the levels of phosphorus that a lot of farmers throw out there right well with cannabis he thought the same thing right like why would this plant be any different why does it need any different and he ran his trials at a 1.5 ec in his deep water culture and found the same thing no we didn't need a lot of phosphorus right well then we came along and said well but you're you're at 1.5 ec typically in a real world growing scenario you're not at i mean the, you know say we're talking about substrate now um because he would also do this peat moss substrate trial but he'd use the same ec um, and uh, we're like so if you know, if we were to feed 1.5 EC to a commercial grow, those plants would look terrible, yep. right? So, <laughs> like that, so we had him run a much higher uh, concentration trial. He went up to like, I think like something like 8.0 even in deep water culture too. Wow. And he found that at a higher EC level, increased phosphorus did increase yield. So it's like, so some of these things that we've been saying forever that, you know, people have this idea of, of you know, you know, they may not know why, and they may have like a really weird, uh, like attempt at explaining why it's happening that, that makes the academia and ag science people go like, you're, you're fucking crazy. But there's, there's a lot of times there's validity yeah. to it somewhere, right? Like that, that piece of information didn't just form out of a vacuum in someone's head. They saw something and that was their interpretation of it. So it's trying to figure out, you know, what did they actually see that they interpreted this and what can we learn from that to, to actually take that information and apply it in or with along with ag science to get the real answer and what's actually going on and what the actual good practice is um it's fun stuff yeah because if you obviously i mean if you have hundreds of growers implementing a similar strategy under the same idea there has to be some validity to it i mean there's some wild things that i've heard in my day which i'm sure you've heard some crazy things about some people do oh, you know you've probably heard everyone in the sun but when you start to hear the same things repeated over and over and over it's like okay i think this holds some water now how do we put it in in a controlled setting to prove it you know uh it's, yeah, it's fascinating to prove it and figure out how far you needed to go with it right like sometimes people go way too far with stuff <laughs> you know like just because you need uh, more phosphorus than the low level doesn't mean you need like a thousand ppm that's of it, right, right? Yeah. so it's it there, there's there's levels to it figuring out the, exactly you know what were people seeing what did it actually mean and how do we actually take advantage of that whatever they did see to get a better crop yeah um, yeah yeah, that's fascinating. It's really all about optimization. I talk a lot about that on the show. It's like, you know, find that perfect balance of uh, of efficiency and operations and revenue and whatever you're trying to accomplish. You know, you can overdo anything. You can drink Absolutely. too much water. Everything in life is about balance. And generally when you're in balance, you're optimal. Uh, and that is, I Absolutely. think, you know, I think that's a, a pretty good segue into something that I was really interested in talking about and is obviously a a, a big debate, not even a debate, just like a, 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 some popular commentary in the industry is the is the organic and soil versus uh, salts, uh, synthetics, and the the argument of quality. You know, I've heard people say, you you know, mm -hmm. best quality is in K and F living soil, blah blah. And I don't doubt you can probably grow some amazing absolute fire. And then I've have guys who grow in rock wool with Athena who are also pumping out fire. And it's the question is. Is there a difference? Is it, you know, I'd love to get your perspective on, on that, uh, that argument. There is and there isn't like it. So 
in traditional agriculture, right? It, it's just a known fact that with organics, you are always going to get a lower yield than you will with synthetic, right? You always, just because of the, the finite energy that the plant has. When, when, you, when you grow using organics, the nutrient density in the soil is usually much lower than it would be with a, you know, a salt-fed plant. Right, so the plant has to grow a much larger root mass in order to get that nutrition. It's not chasing water; it's chasing the nutrients. Yeah. Um, that was energy that could have gone to the canopy. So just right there alone, you're talking about a plant that used some energy in the root zone that it otherwise could have sent to the canopy. Not necessarily a bad thing. Now it, it comes down to your sale price, right? Really, in the end, if you can charge more for organic cannabis, great. Otherwise, personally. I, I don't, I don't really see much difference. I know a lot of people say that they can tell the difference between organic and and uh, synthetic and yada yada. I, I haven't personally gotten any organic flower that I was like, holy shit, this yeah. is like okay, yeah, that's the that's the way to go. You know, it, it's kind of you know, it, it's all of how plant was grown in a holistic fashion That's anyway. Right. You know, your climate can have a huge impact on your quality. Your lights can have a huge impact on your irrigate. Everything can have a huge impact on your quality, yeah. not just the form of nutrients that are coming in. Yeah. And, and even in that case, right, like, so when plants take up nutrients, it's through, it's based, it's through osmosis, right? So they are letting in one individual little ion at a time right they're not letting in a big chunk of like worm shit or something like that yeah so it's they have like say nitrogen for example plants can take up no3 or nh4 nitrate nitrogen or ammoniacal form of nitrogen right they can't tell the difference between whether that came from calcium nitrate or worm poop right they have no idea because it is the same exact ion there's it's not a compound anymore it's not a bunch of different ions glommed together that the plant's taking up so you're not you're not getting any of these other things coming into the plant it's just that nitrate ion one no3 that's what comes into the plant so you know i i don't think that they're you know personally i i subscribe to the um you know mineral density is mineral density and if you can get it into the soil however you do it you do it great you know as long as there's enough there your plant's going to do well now i i don't I haven't played around with much organics. I don't, I'm not an organic grower. I don't really know how to even mix up a soil like that very well. I mean, I can do it out in a big multi-acre field, but we're talking just, you know, throwing things down that any, like a corn farmer would throw down yep. gypsum and then not running everything through drip, but still there we're using, you know, urea, ammonium, nitrate, potassium, thiosulfate through the drip system. So it's, it's, um, uh, I just, you know, knowing that the plants are taking up the nutrients in the same identical form, regardless of source, I can't imagine that the source alone has much impact on quality. I I think it's a whole lot more of the other that that impacts that. Well, I think too, you know, with organics, you know, there's uh, the nutrients, right? When you put, they're not bioavailable because they still have that carbon molecule attached, which has to be broken down, yeah. you know, through the microbes. So, you know, if you have a, a nitrogen burner, you have some sort of deficiency in your leaves and you need to adjust the nutrients with the salt-based, you can adjust it on the fly and you're going to see results, you know, 
ASAP because that nitrogen is readily available yeah. where if you were to add a fish poop or a, a blood meal or whatever nitrogen source, it's going to have to go through a, a, a degradation process to remove that carbon group yeah. and make that, you know, which in some cases could be too late. So, yeah, I, I personally, yeah. yeah, I think it's well, less it's a, about it's this. a much more complicated and like it's, just, it's a lot more challenging in my opinion, right? Like being able to figure out exactly what amendments to put into a soil to last an entire lifespan for that plant. Yeah. That, that's an art, that's right? An there. Art. You know, that's I mean, for hats sure. off to the guys that do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's impressive that they're able to, you know, learn that plant well enough to know what it needs from start Certainly. to finish and throw it all in the soil right away instead of, you know, just being able to, like you said, adjust on the fly. You know, I, I think it takes some skill to do it. And, you know, and I, I'll I'll never sit here and say that my way is better than anybody else's. Yeah. But uh, I I as far as the you know the nutrient ions themselves, there is no difference between how you know the the effect on the plant from getting that from you know some kind of organic source versus getting it from calcium nitrate or something like that. Yeah. It's the same ion. Yeah, I think that's kind of the beautiful thing about this this plant is it doesn't really matter how you grow it. You know, soil hydro whatever you know you can uh, there's you can grow a million ways million ways there really is yep. that's the awesome thing and i uh, i've always been personally interested i started in soil yeah. outdoor well, and that's what it keeps some yeah that's what will keep some variety in our market too right? certainly like if everybody starts doing the same exact thing we're going to have a bunch of the same exact product out there that's, and that's right. no fun yeah that's <laughs> no fun um yeah no i appreciate it. i I've, I've i don't need, i think it's some people are, you know, obviously you try not to succumb to the uh, sometimes silly debates on social media, but it's something that I see people going back and forth on. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm interested. People are passionate. They get, they they are. get almost religious about it sometimes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and that religiosity, I, I try to very, I try to keep away from that very, even, you know, my own dogma that I use in the grow everywhere. Yeah. I, I still try to say, like, I don't know everything, you know, yeah. I could be completely, you know, Five years from now, I'll probably be growing completely different than I am. Uh, right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. <laughs> because we all we we keep learning, keep learning all the time. And if you're doing that, then you know you're going to look back at yourself in five, ten years and laugh. Basically. But that's that's part of the fun, part of the growth. That's right. Grow, the growers are like chefs. You know, I, I have an uncle who's a very successful restaurateur. He's been in business for like 25 years, and it's his way. You know, there's no coming in really and saying, hey, maybe you should do yeah. this or you should change the menu. Uh-uh, I've been doing it for 25 years. It's my way. Hey, here's some proof that it could be better. Don't care. This is my way. And I, I see a lot of growers who are like that. And hey, respect to them, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever works for you. Sir, yeah, you I know? agree. Um, I want to talk about something that has been a really popular topic in cultivation Everybody really knows what crop steering is at this point, and, and a lot of people are now implementing it. One thing that I didn't realize was there's a lot of, you know, I have a, a bunch of friends who've been, who've been growing a lot longer than I have been, um, generations even, who are just finding out about crop steering, which is really cool because it's like, you know, guys who've been doing it forever, who knows what they can do to their product now with, you know, this type of strategy. Oh, yeah. But we know what the what is, but the question is, why exactly does crop steering work? Well, and, and even the what is usually uh, misinterpreted, right? So the people think that crop steering is something you can add to your practice. You're already steering your crop, whether you know it or not. Everybody is. Because it's all, all crop steering really means is 
you change something about what you're doing to the plant or its environment to get a response out of it. That's all that means. So it's, you know, it, it kind of turned into this weird buzzword where it sounded like people were saying you could like add crops during your reservoir, but that's not, it's, it's <laughs> Just something pour everybody's some in there, doing right? whether yeah. they know it or not. It's figuring out, yeah, it's figuring out like, how do you do it intentionally? And how, how do you use the different tools that are at your disposal to affect those changes in the plant that you want and get a desirable result? But uh, as far as the why, or yeah, the like why it works or how it works, um, in, in hydroponic substrates, which is what most people that do crop steering are using um, or do this method of crop steering through irrigation scheduling are using, um, the, so, well, let's back up. So a natural soil, when it's at its absolute wettest, the matrix potential, which is basically a measure of the surface tension of the soil particles against the water, right? How much energy does it take to pull that water out of the soil? The matrix potential of a completely soaked soil is about 20 to 30 kilopascal, negative 20 to 30. It's a negative number. So it, it gets weird, fun to talk about, but, um, they wilt at about 1500 kilopascal, but plants can start to notice or cannabis plants, I should say, cause every crop is different, but cannabis plants can start notice, noticing the water reducing right around 80 kilopascal or so 80, hundred, something like that. And so that's when they enter kind of like a drought stress mode, right? And they will start conserving water because they see the water's going away. They start throttling down stomata, not transpiring as much. They slow down their metabolism, their growth rate, yada, 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 right? Um, and they, they go into kind of a generative response. So it's, it's you know, get, get my reproduction done so I can get my genes out there before I die, right? Just the whole uh, evolution thing, yeah. just, or how, how plants are, they're solely focused on reproduction, right? Um, so in, in hydroponic substrates, you can't use that water level right you the at the absolute wettest like let's take rockwool for example the absolute wettest you're at by basically zero kilopascal um and at the absolute driest that that substrate can get before the plant dies you're at about four kilopascal so you can see the the absolute driest rockwool is still easier for plants to absorb water from than a completely soaked natural soil in the field so we can't really use that dryness level to give the planet that that drought stress response right which is what we use to get that you know in the first three weeks of flower we use that water stress you know a light water stress signaling you know you don't go too crazy because then you just shut them down um, but a light water stress gives you a better stack gives you more bud sites it keeps the plant a little stockier um it has a, a lot of good benefits to it to doing that in those those first three weeks of flower especially um but uh to, to be able to do that, we have to use osmotic potential, which is another piece of the total water potential that the plant feels, right? The, the amount of force it has to overcome to absorb water. So the osmotic potential is basically just due to dissolved salts. You're um, roughly about every 1.0 EC is about with, you know, typical cannabis nutrients or really any fertilizer is about 38 or 40 kilopascal. So we use that, that EC to actually give the signal to the plant. So a lot of people really focus on the dryback percentage and that's really the wrong part to focus on. So, you know, say you were to start watering two hours after lights on, 
you get all your watering done within two hours and you spend 22 hours drying down or uh, yeah, 20 hours drying down and before irrigation starts the next day and then, or sorry, 22 hours drying down before irrigation starts the next day, but you only get a 10% reduction in water content compared to scenario two, where you only get, you know, say you have to water way further into the day and you stop and you only get about, um, let's say 14 hours of dry back, but you got a a 30% decrease in water content versus the 10 that you got with the other one at 22. Option A with the smaller percentage dryback is still far more generative than option B because of the timing. So the the amount of time that the plant spends drying back is more critical than the percentage it drops because again the plant can't tell, you know, cocoa is pretty much the same and only goes up to like 40 kilopascal or so. The plant can't tell that the water is going away. Yeah. They feel the same ease of uptake of water until that substrate's basically mostly gone that was the point of hydroponic substrates was to make it easy like that yeah. right um it's a it, it's supposed to provide for better growth than a natural soil would that was the the original idea behind the substrates um so because we can't use that part we have to use the ec that time of dry down during that dry back you're also seeing the ec climb up slowly so that is actually the important part that's signaling the plant. It's not the reduction in water content. It's over time during the lighted hours is that EC slowly, slowly going up. Um, and if it is, you're getting a more generative response than you would if it's not, basically. Um, so the you know I, a lot of people focus on okay, what dryback percentage should I get from lights off to lights on the next day? And really, that doesn't matter all that much. Right. Like we have targets because we generally know what it does to the substrate. And that's how we taught people that method, because it's a whole lot easier to grasp on your first try to just say, okay, aim for this percent dryback. You know, if you have your lights roughly in the, in the range of PPFD we use and your climate's relatively similar, you're probably going to have spend this much time getting or drying back to be able to hit that target. So we, we taught people the easy way, but the, it may have been, it may have been a, I probably should have gone more into the detail for some up front just so that they understood that the the more important part is that EC and what it does throughout the day, what your high is, what your low is, where it's moving throughout the day and that kind of stuff because that osmotic potential is actually what signals the plant for us. Well, it's also probably a little more difficult, you know, to tell, you know, what the EC, you know, what's, what the EC is in the substrate compared to what the dryback is, because at least without substrate sensors, you can, if you're seasoned, you can get an idea of what the bag weighs. You have no idea what's going on inside the substrate from an EC perspective. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I mean, you can take runoff values, but you know, that even that will only get you close. And then it, even then it depends on how big is your substrate? What's your flow rate through the drippers? Yeah. How far are they spaced apart? Are you, are you hitting runoff before the media is completely saturated? Are you actually pushing down the old nutrients top to bottom and out? Because I mean, it, that's how you want to do it. You want to be dripping slow enough where it's pushing all of the old stuff out the bottom. But then that's what you're left reading, right? Is the old it's stuff old, yeah. that was not used by uh, you know a bunch of uh, even like the hydrogen and hydroxyl atoms the plant shit out to, in exchange for its nutrients. Um, it, so you know, reading even pH from the runoff is kind of hard to really rely on because it's the waste you know yeah so that's interesting. it is definitely tough if you don't have substrate sensors to do this kind of precision irrigation steering kind of stuff 
you can still do it with a scale and the syringe, but yeah. Yeah, it's a lot harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when we're talking about uh, optimization, you definitely want to have substrate sensors. I mean, I went for the longest time. Yeah, you're going to spend and, you're yeah. going to spend so much labor doing yeah. it manually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just not going to be worth it. Yeah. Them. Um, I I want to talk about something that um, is relevant right now, both to me and to a lot of growers in New York who are preparing for licensure and are, are starting, starting to grow out of their basements or small warehouses and are we're going to start seeing some uh, uh, more at scale operations, which means much more sophisticated room design and capacity loads and all that stuff. Um, Energy is obviously a big thing, and I'll be you know very transparent. When I really designed my last room, I didn't really fully understand the math, and when when it all came down to it, I went way under in dehumidification and uh, air conditioning, right? And I had to bring in uh, supplemental AC, and I was only ever I, I, I it, it was a struggle for me, um, and I'd like to try to prevent that from people from happening because it's an expensive mistake, right? So oh, yeah. when yeah. you are, you know, when you are building out a room, what are the, th in terms of, you know, creating a room that has enough power, whether it's 10 lights or 50 lights and all these dehumidification, how do you determine total energy capacity before design, you know, when you're designing out a facility to make sure that you have enough power, you have enough AC, you have enough dehumidification to handle everything that's going on in that room? Usually we're working within the limits of the property, right? Like a lot of times it's, you know, how much power do you have? Well, let's work with that sure. because the getting, getting upgrades can be a, you know, year, two year, three year, five year process, depending on where you live. Um, getting more power is doable for some people, but for a lot of them, it's very not doable. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of more, let's take the property, see how much power you've got to work with. That will dictate the size of canopy we can do in here because we don't want to spread everything out and do things like barely on the edge or not like you said not have enough dehumidification for example or something like that in order to get a bigger canopy because it's just going to go to mold yeah. basically yeah. so you know starting with what you have you know don't over don't push the powder too much you blow the transformer pg gets mad they don't, they don't like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know and then as far as capacities go you know that that was a lot of just learning over the years what worked um you know there's there's calculations you can do and if people really want to nerd out on it and get into it just go with the the psychrometric chart and maybe look up some videos on how to use it or something and and you can you can do a lot of that map just with that chart right and figuring out your not not your loads from cannabis but you know what is the hvac equipment going to do what are your entering and exiting conditions that'll tell you how how many tons of cooling you need basically but We've, we've also come up with just rules of thumb now that we know all of this and are able to kind of just simplify all of that math, right? So um, typically, like for, for dehumidification, for example, jeez, um, what was this? Um, sorry, somebody's blowing up my phone all of a sudden. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> um, anyway, so for dehumidification level, um, you know, there's a lot of, that went into figuring it out, but basically like a rule of thumb for people, six pints per plant per day. If you're, if you put that into your, into your facility and you're when you're running these kind of like high output 
crops during tactics that are getting these like 100 gram a square foot yields yeah. and uh, or you know if you're under hps i think we hit like was our, our biggest i think it was like 4.8 per <laughs> per uh, thousand watt light wow. or some pl um but so when you get the plants to perform like that they put out a lot more water right a lot of water into the atmosphere but in general you know if you have a room and you have your own practices and you're not you don't have that kind of load going into it you may be able to get away with less dehumidification but basically if you just account for however much water you irrigated into those plants account that you need to bring that back out that's right you know so if you know the total volume of water you're putting into that room give yourself the same in pints per day for for dehumidification at least um there's there is differences in timing right like plants don't transpire much at night but there's also no help from the acs at night yeah so it's kind of you know you, you, there are a bunch of things to figure out to get like precise but i found that if you give yourself six pints of plant a day and you're in one of these commercial buildings you'll, you'll be okay you'll be okay yeah yeah that's that's it. what we use for our design our design capacity measure yeah i've always just went for every pint i bring in i gotta you know i pretty much calculated how much you know based on my highest my, take it back out my largest you yeah. know my highest irrigation is usually week four to week six six so during that you know what is the max amount of water that yeah. i'm giving the plants and then i designed hvac based around you know that so whatever pints you're bringing in make sure okay. you can take no. it out that is the easiest way to make sure you may you know some people may wind up oversized with that because some comes out and runoff and goes down the drain sure. right yeah. you know not all of that water actually gets transpired or evaporated out Jeez, Ramsey, you knew I was doing this. Why are you calling me? He's trying to three-way in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. Okay. Yeah, that's something um, I got to say. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, but uh, but anyway, so the the dehumidification load is definitely important. How you get there is, it doesn't really matter. A lot of Some people like to use reheat. Some people like to use other units. There's a big debate around that, too. I know that, you know, in some cases, reheat makes way more sense because you don't want to buy a DHU and you've already got the ACs. You throw, uh, you know, especially if you have the ability to do like hot gas reheat where it doesn't cost an arm and a leg in electricity to do. Um, and those ACs, you know, a five ton can do like 500 pints a day or something yeah. like that, I think, or 600. Um, they can they can do quite a bit. Um, but, in you know, we do still use separate dehumidifiers for stability purposes, right? Because we, if you're running the dehumidification part can't be running the ac or well you are running the ac but you're not cooling at the same time and so you know to to be able to have multiple stages which is one of the important parts right having multiple stages of cooling and multiple stages of dehumidification um so that you know because the plants grow they, they're not always the same output so you can't just have your maximum running yep. um anytime you switch it on you want to be able to just switch on one of them yep. you know or switch on two of them or any combination thereof um staging is important having enough is important um but really you know how you get there doesn't matter if you're using dqs or or reheat you're you're pretty much spending the same uh, energy wise anyways because the dhu just turns latent heat of condensation into sensible heat which then the ac cools so it kind of it it lets it does let each device do what it does best right like um i mean quest and those kind of like you know little dehumidifiers cool but you know like something like dry air is is more um like if if it was an ideal world and those would fit everywhere that's all i'd use 
Um, we do use them in greenhouses, definitely, because you you, <laughs> you could not use something like Quest or Andon in a greenhouse. No. It would just be they'd just be way too many. Um, at least to be able to keep it perfect underneath that blackout curtain at night. Um, but the dry air units are very, very efficient at what they do. They don't blow out super heated air either. It's it's just kind of like neutral. Um, but they move a lot of air. They move like 13,000 CFM or something like that Holy cow. in each unit. It's uh, but it it does. Uh, it's a you know it's a it's a dehumidifier that was actually designed and built for the horticulture industry. It wasn't some repurposed commercial yeah. DU right that was meant for warehouses or something like that. So these ones are actually rated at 60 degrees instead of 80 like most of the yeah. the uh, small DQs out there are and they do something like you know 12 gallons an hour at, at 60 degrees which is a crazy amount of water removal yeah but uh, wow um, but anyway yeah tangent on DQs but uh hopefully the the capacity question was answered no it's uh <laughs> it's 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 honestly something I'm really passionate about I really enjoy room building and I've you know keep learning from you know I made a lot of mistakes in my first room and put a ton of money into it and I I see a lot of no. guys trying to make moves in the legal market and upgrade their game. And, you know, it's a different animal going from your couch or your garage into a warehouse with, you know, it's, it's completely oh, different. So I hate, I just want, you yeah, know, very, very different. Yeah. yeah. Very, very different. <laughs> you'd hate, you'd hate to see somebody, you know, burn through their hard earned investment capital, which are, uh, we already know is an absolute fucking nightmare to deal with in this industry, you know, and have to redo something oh, yeah. or way go under on capacity. You know what I'm saying? So I pr appreciate you sharing that because yeah, that and that and humidifiers is another big one. I don't see enough humidifiers in people's, um, flower rooms, especially it's a lot of people have in veg, but you know, veg should never get below 65 percent humidity like ever so you definitely need them there and, and having them in flowers same thing goes for your first three weeks of flower if you're steering generatively in the root zone those plants are sensitive to environmental stressors so having that or making sure that that vpd never gets above 1.4 becomes really critical when you're doing that generative crop steering and a lot of times when people are putting plants into a flower room the flower room's designed with, you know, a lot of dehumidification, a lot of AC, and it just dries it out super quick because the plants are still small. Yeah. Um, so those humidifiers in there are also another critical thing that we don't we don't see enough of. We, that's one of the first things we usually do when we uh, sign up a new client is we're adding dehues and humidifiers. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of people, you know, are scared of humidity too, especially in flower and air, you know, small home grower uh -huh. buddies that I know are air on the side of dry, 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 dry. You know, and it's you're going to give yourself more PM that way. Yeah. <laughs> in the ag world, PM is known as dry mold. Really? So it it needs it needs that dryness in order for its spores to desiccate enough to become airborne and spread to the next site. So if you don't let it get that dry, they can never move, and you'll have one spore maybe that grew on your leaf, yeah. but you'll never see it. You'll never know it was there. Wow. Because it can't it can't uh, it can't reproduce. So uh, having you know, a lot of, we've gone into so many facilities that have crazy PM problems and they're running, you know, 45, 50% humidity. <laughs> we raise it up to 70, no, no PM anymore at all. Wow. No, no extra IPM steps, no nothing. Just raising that humidity gets rid of the PM. Completely counterintuitive. Yeah. <laughs> but, but give it a try. <laughs> Hell yeah. Fascinating. Yep. That's a pro tip right there. I hope everyone's paying attention to that. Yep. 
<laughs> well, dude, I uh, I really, really appreciate, you know, with everything you got going on, giving me an hour of your time and chatting with, I, I, I really appreciate it. I love nerding out, you know, especially to people like you who really are, you know, Damn. are have been at the forefront of this in, in more ways than one and, you know, obviously have a ton of respect for you. And I know a lot of people do too. Well, thank um, you. On a, on a personal note, you know, if you had to grow your own garden for the, you know, Top quality cannabis. What's your preferred method of cultivation in terms of substrate, light type, etc.? Well, I, I'm starting to turn more towards LEDs. I, you know, a year ago I would have been like HPS all day long in doubt because the the and really it was just because we didn't know how to use them yeah. yet, right? And we didn't know the differences between spectrums. But we found a light with a very good spectrum that actually gives roughly the same or even shorter flowering time than HPS does. But, you know, high light intensity, that's that's the most critical. The, the spectrum does matter, but far less than the intensity does. Okay. You know, PPFD is king. One, 1% light is 1% yield. Yeah. So, you know, if you're like, for, if, if I was to build an ideal grow, I'd probably be somewhere 13, 1500 micromoles of LED, um, single layer. I, I don't really like racks because it's, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a volume of canopy, not just square footage. And so if you, if you rack them up like that, you know, you've got maybe two feet, vertical feet of usable canopy on each rack in like a four foot or five foot tall rack. Yep. And you stack two on top of each other. That's four feet. I can get five feet of usable canopy from a single layer. Yep. So it's like, so I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that there are people that are doing multi-tiers that are trying newer methods with like smaller plants and whatnot and that yeah. makes a lot more sense than trying to grow a six foot tall plant in a rack yeah. um but uh but anyway so that i i like cocoa um one gallon cocoa like dutch planting yeah. is uh, the one we use pretty much everywhere right now that uh, we use real cocoa um some other versions this just depending on what's available or um, as long as it's roughly within the same um, specs and parameters on like chip to pith ratio stuff like that sure. um drip irrigation all day long and of course air crop tech fertilizer absolutely you know, uh, and uh substrate sensors i can't i can't grow without them anymore to be honest man I, or i don't want to it it takes so much effort to get that data other ways that if i don't have that little sensor stuffed in the side of the bag and a graph i can go look at i'm just not interested you know <laughs> yeah and even like i haven't even upgraded to like the 24-hour monitoring i'm still using my spot sensor which is helpful i couldn't imagine just having you know nine weeks or 11 weeks full of data that i can like oh wow no oh, yeah that's that's my next move so i uh no i agree with you i think no, once you get, i'd recommend it yeah it's it's nice to have i mean there's other options out there for you know for home growers that can't because i know roy can't even sell to home growers um there, there are other options out there some of them coming some of them already out there i think like that you can get like that HoboNet setup or the RNet or whatever it is that has uh, basically has the Terrace 12 sensor and then just some other form of telemetry sure. in the graph that you can get. Um, so there's some other options out there, but uh, but yeah, I it's it's hard. I would at least have to have the spot check. Yeah, but even with the spot check, you can get a graph. You can get a graph going. It's just not have so many data points. That's right. As long as you take it at the right times, right? Like you take take the take your reading right before irrigation starts yes. for the day. Take it right when you hit runoff take it you know halfway through the day and then right before the lights go out yep. you've got a pretty good idea of what your your pattern is through the day yeah i uh no i agree once you have access to the data it's hard to go back right 
hundred percent. Well, dude, thanks so much for your time. It, it was a real pleasure talking. I really appreciate you sharing all your knowledge and really everything you've done to help move this industry forward. And uh, I look forward to, to, to watching you and watching what you're up to next. And I'm sure uh, the, our audience will have a lot of questions. Where can people find you online? Um, I've, my Instagram is super unoriginal. It's just at Josh underscore Newlinger, which is N-E-U-L-I-N-G-E-R. Um, or my email, josh at jrcroptech.com. Okay. And I'll put both of those in the show notes so people know where, how to get to you. Right on. Awesome. Cool. Well, my, my man, well, thanks, thanks for having so, me on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. I hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. I'd right. love to. All right. Well, take care. Everybody, right this has been another episode of Cannabis Cum Laude. This is my, my guest today, Josh Newlinger, of, co-founder of JR Crop Tech. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks again. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com. You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn and all other social media platforms, as well as Cannabuzz. And if you'd like to help support the show, search up Cannabis Cum Laude on Patreon. And of course, all of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for watching and listening.